Yes, thank you, uh, and thanks for inviting me, sir. Uh, great honor, and, and in fact, I, I couldn't really think of a better place to, to present this paper. Uh, it, I think, addresses the core question of, of, of this project, which is, I think, what's the best way to explain the apparent structure and regularity of the world. And this is an attempt to, to do exactly that. Uh, I'm going to, well, a large part of the talk will be really presenting an idea about causation that I presented in a paper in 2002 called Causal Production as Interaction. Uh, where I tried to modify the Aristotelian view of causation. And since then, I've, I've come to think that uh, it's not only a, an account of, of change, which is, which is what we typically associate with causality, but with also with the way that compound entities are constituted and how they persist over time. So it kind of, uh, offers a, a causal account in ways that wasn't previously, I think, uh, available. Uh, and I'll... I'll Begin by really then uh, rehearsing the Aristotelian view, uh, and later then introduce the, the, the modification that I think is needed of this view, and um, uh, draw out certain contrasts I think between the Aristotelian view and the way we see ways of thinking about causation. So on the Aristotelian view, a causal change, and causal changes are different from non-causal changes in that causal changes involve influence. Uh, Aristotle thought that all change, even change of position, involved some kind of influence, a uh, mover, uh, but he didn't have the concept of inertial motion, and we now think that things just continue in the state of motion in the absence of, of influences. So this, this only concerns changes that involve an influence. And those kind of changes, uh, for them to obtain, we first must have something. Something must already exist, some determinate object, uh, mainly because nothing comes into being out of nothing. Nothing is ever completely annihilated. All, all change is really just a matter of something that already exists that changes from one state to another. And, but the first object that we are invited to consider is of a peculiar kind because it's supposed to be passive. It's a mere receptacle of influences, but doesn't influence other things, uh, which is why it's called a patient, roughly what could be associated with the material uh, cause. Right? Uh, an object of that kind, we might think of a window just sitting in its frame doing nothing, just waiting for an accident to, ha to happen. Uh, they will only change if some external influence is, is exerted upon them. We call that external influence an action. Uh, and the action is exerted by another object, which is decidedly different from the first, in that it has the ability to influence, which is why it's called an agent. So typically we might imagine a, a window just sitting there at peace, and then a brick comes flying through the air and hits the window and breaks. And the idea here is that without this particular type of action exerted by this particular type of agent on this particular type of patient, the determinate kind of effect that this produced would not have occurred. So there's implied in the Aristotelian view uh, a connection between causation and counterfactuality. This is something that uh, modern promoters of counterfactual accounts easily forget, that it has always been an idea that, that causation is tied to counterfactuality. They may not have used the word counterfactuality, they just talked about necessity. Uh, so there is no, as some philosophers will argue, a gap in our understanding of the connection between causation and counterfactuality. The gap arose once philosophers started to say that there is no connection between causes and, and effects, or well, the connection is, is contingent. And when you start to deny that, it becomes a mystery why E only obtains in case C does. Right? And so you have to invent some other explanation, and that other explanation today is the ontology of possible worlds, which substitutes the causal connection. 
Now, of course, uh, whether causation really does ground counterfactuality will depend on whether we make sense of the necessary connection, and I'll make an attempt to do that later. Now, certain features of the Aristotelian view that uh, are <coughs> that uh, need to be highlighted, and the first is that on the Aristotelian view, causation is not a two-place relation between, between two distinct entities, not a first is and that idea. It doesn't deny that there are two distinct entities, but it will insist that that connection and those two entities are uh, derivative of or products of an underlying process which involves the action of an agent on a patient. So really that you have an agent and you have a patient, they in a sense form a, a certain kind of material system and the agent in that system acts on the patient and that causes a change in that system so that it evolves into the effect. Uh, and any states that are the result of that, uh, of that process are derivative of the process. Right? And the, what we talk nowadays about as the connection between cause and effect is connected through this underlying causal process right? on the Aristotelian. Uh, a second uh, component is that on the Aristotelian view, causal influence is not from cause to effect, which is the popular view today. That causes influence their effects or, or act on them. Right? This idea is so <laughs> so, so big, so entrenched today in philosophy that even hardcore causal readers like John Bigelow and, and Robert Pargetter and Brian Ellis will insist that, that the talk of action between bodies is legitimate but derivative of between events. Uh, but at least that was never uh, the case until, in fact, Hume came along. Uh, and we have here a, a citation from, from Aristotle. As regards potencies of the non-rational kind, when the agent and the patient meet in a way appropriate to the potency in question, the one must act and the other be acted on. And he's not talking about the potencies, he's talking about the agent and the patient. And exactly a similar statement this is made in, in Hobbes in 1655, so 2,000 years later, almost, or even more than that. Uh, um, it's between the objects. Now, you might not want to take the Aristotle's authority for this, so we might consider common sense. What does common sense have to say about the influence? And it seems to me that if I want to close the door, I'd better act on the door, producing a motion, ending in a closing, right? Uh, I don't act on the closing of the door, that's just nonsense. A locomotive pulls a truck, that's producing a motion. The locomotive doesn't pull the motion of the truck. Again, that's just nonsense. Uh, and in most ontologies, except certain process ontologies, events aren't really that kind of entities that are capable of receiving an influence at all. They're always derivative of influences, a consequence, if you, if you like. And uh, I'm sure someone might produce a semantic analysis of, of causal statements revealing that usually with a lot of exceptions we talk of, of uh, influences between objects. And if we consult science, what does science have to say about the influence? It seems that they always talk about influence between objects. Except when you're talking on the macroscopic scale, like, like smoking causes cancer, which we don't know, and nobody implies that there's a direct influence here. There's a nicotine that acts on, on the cells in the, in the lungs and so on. Science will talk about uh, quarks influencing one another. We'll talk about protons and electrons influencing one another. They will talk about chemical compounds reacting with one another. A chemical compound never reacts with the outcome of a reaction. That's just nonsense. Planets interact. Okay, influence is always between bodies. Uh, you can think of the second law of motion, force equals mass times acceleration. What is it that acts and what receives the influence? Does, is the force exerted by the one mass on the acceleration? No. The force is exerted between the masses, thus producing an acceleration. So, the more I think of this, the more puzzled I am about this idea that causation or influence is from cause to effect. 
It seems to me it's a, it's a crazy idea. It's an anomaly in human thinking. It's, it's only found in philosophy. And uh, I think we better give it up. And uh, what I'm really going to try and show is that if we give it up and return to the Aristotelian idea, it's between objects, we get rid of one of the main problems in the philosophy of causation, which is causal necessity. The problem of causal necessity, as it's usually presented, is really just a product of this idea that causation is first this, then that, and an influence between them. And if we give that idea up, there is no problem. Okay? It's a bold claim, right? Uh, let's see how this works. Uh, so I've argued that causation is a process on the team view, and it's an influence involved, uh, between objects, not between events. And let's see how this works out when we consider the problem of causal necessity. And the necessity involved is unconditional, right? And I'm borrowing here the, the test of necessity that Mumford and Nanjum give us, uh, which we can apply to a particular theory of causation and, and say that if the theory says that A necessitates B, then it better be the case according to that theory that if A obtains, then no matter what else obtains with it, we should still always get B. It is possible to introduce some factor that prevents B from following A and clearly connection wasn't necessary. And so we have this uh, a family of arguments that can be subsumed under the heading interference and prevention that profess to prove that we can't exclude the possibility of some factor that comes in between the cause and effect and prevents the effect from following. And the first kind of argument uh, is the one we find in Russell in his paper on notion of course. And um, luckily it's easy to see really why this argument really doesn't work as applied to the Aristotelian because he, he uh, presents very neatly the, the, the view that he's concerned about, right? And which he borrows from a dictionary. So in this view, cause and effect are correlative terms denoting any two distinguishable things, phases or aspects of reality, which are so related to each other that, first, whenever the first ceases to exist, the second comes into existence immediately after. And secondly, whenever the second comes into existence, the first has ceased to exist immediately before. And the argument here is that, well, if time has a structure of the continuum, then no matter how close the end point of the course is to the beginning point of the effect, there's always going to be an infinity of time points in between, which allows in, in principle that something happens in that, at those moments and prevents the effect from following, really prevents the course from acting on its, on its effect. Now, if, if causation is first this, then that, with an influence between them, yeah, that, that view is in trouble here. But on the Aristotelian view, there is no problem because the influence is not between times. We have a, a brick and we have a window. They coexist at the time before the collision. They coexist throughout, coming closer and closer. They hit each other. And when the brick and the window are interacting, they coexist. And they coexist as a brick lying in a pile of broken glass afterwards, too. So at no point is there any relata that are subjected to an influence or being influenced that exist at different times. If you're not uh, convinced by this little bit quick and dirty treatment. I think the, it will become clear when we go through the other kinds of arguments which do not rely on this temporal gap thing. And that's, that, this is the kind of argumentation we find in Mumford and, and actually really the whole chapter 3 and a little bit of the other chapters too. And we can, uh, I can convey the idea of why it goes wrong just by considering simple prevention. So the idea here is that uh, if a course C allows to, uh, course C occurs to completion, but before the effect B has a chance to begin, the intervening factor P uh, intervenes and prevents the effect from happening. Right? An example would be an assassin firing her weapon at a victim, the bullet travels the distance towards the victim, but at the very last moment, 
a bullet comes from the side, hits the first bullet, and they're both deflected out of harm's way, leaving just a scratch, you know, securing contiguity. And then, of course, if causation is first this than that, then you have this spatiotemporally bounded event, the movement towards the bullet, or you can think of Hume's example of the billiard balls, right? Uh, and then another spatiotemporally bounded event is supposed to follow immediately after, uh, but it doesn't here. So the first this than that uh, conception is in trouble. But what about the Aristotelian view? Have we allowed in this example a cause C to occur to completion on the Aristotelian view? And I can't see how. What's being prevented is the action of an agent on a patient. The bullet never acts on the victim in the way required to produce death. And so no death follows. Instead, in fact, the example illustrates why the Aristotelian view works. Because necessarily, when one bullet is hit by another bullet, they are both deflected out of one's way. Necessarily so. So the counter argument is really a confirmation rather than a refutation of the Aristotelian. In fact, it's not possible to introduce an interference here if you, if you allow the agent to act or influence the patient in a certain way. You can't not have the effect without violating some law of nature. So it's only if we think in terms of first this and that that we have a problem and otherwise we don't. We can further illustrate this with things in antidote cases. And I think really, you know, there's a, some people have complained that when you discuss things and antidotes and these arguments in this way, it all seems a little bit, you know, irrelevant because these examples were never really designed to treat with the Aristotelian concession. It was, they were designed to, to deal with kind of conditional analysis of causation. But obviously, causal realists today think that these arguments are relevant. That's why Manfred and Nanjim spent quite a lot of time trying to, to show that they are, in fact, valid, these arguments. So it's a, we need to go through them and see where they go wrong, exactly. So if we try and adapt them to an Aristotelian conception, then, then we need to think of things as really, if we compare it to, to the prevention case, we had an external object that intervened. And here, the, the intervening factor is intrinsic to either the agent or the patient. And roughly, if we put the intervening factor in the agent, it's a thing. If you put it in the patient, it's an antidote. Okay. Uh, and, and the thing is then something in the agent that counteracts the agent's own ability to affect the patient. So we might have an example, which is, a, again, the assassin finds a weapon at the victim, uh, and the bullet travels the distance towards the victim, having all the powers it needs to kill. Right? It has linear momentum, velocity, and it's hard and so on. But it also has the thinkish property of instantaneously evaporating if it touches striated muscle cells. Now, the example is strange, but uh, the literature is abounds with strange examples. And why? Well, because it doesn't work if you use real-life examples. Yeah. You have to use properties that no one has ever heard of, that no one knows how they work. Otherwise, you realize that, oh, no, you can't let this influence happen because then something else, you, you can tell why they don't work. So you have to use these crazy examples. Now, in this example, if, of course, what kind of view is in trouble here? Well, the first is the net view is in trouble, but also the view that individual powers are causes that necessitate something. But was ever claimed that an individual power necessitates an outcome? I don't know of anyone, except those who want to parody a powers-based account to refute it. Okay? Other philosophers that seriously consider powers as causal powers, they think that a causal, a causal power contributes not necessitate, it's not whatever, you know, that power is going to bring about anything. Together, uh, several causal powers produce something. Uh, but mainly here, the problem is that, that on the Arsotini view, there is no problem. If an agent of this kind, with this pinkish property, interacts with a patient with a heart, necessarily it will evaporate and do no damage. 
So there's no problem. Uh, we can do the same thing pretending that the victim is, is, has a Finkish property, the Finkish property of becoming instantaneously perfectly permeable. It becomes like a ghost, you know, so the bullet touches it, becomes like a ghost and just passes through. And that also is a consequence of the Aristotelian. If an agent of that kind touches an agent of that kind, the outcome is necessarily that the victim becomes like a ghost and the bullet just passes through. Yeah? So, no problem here either. In fact, I, I can't see that there is a problem anywhere at all. And, and my kind of conclusion is that the problem here is that when Hume first introduced the idea that causation is succession, really, really that it's succession of contiguous objects, but these objects were objects of perception, which when often repeated, uh, that gave rise to an inner feeling of inevitability, that this is how it always will continue to be, which is an irrational feeling because we can't inductively justify it, right? Uh, but he did so, of course, by taking influence out of the picture. On his account, contiguity had nothing to do with influence between the objects. It had to do with a, a psychological principle of association in our minds. We only associate two things together if they're close to one another. It has nothing to do with the influence between bodies. But then later, when realists came along again and said, oh, surely there's causation somewhere here, right? There's influence. Where do we put the influence? And then the model has already been established that causation is first this and that, and they put the influence between, okay? And that's the source to the problem of causal necessity, as far as I can tell. Now, there might be other problems with causal necessity, which may have to do, for instance, with quantum physics, uncertainty, and just things like that. That's still kind of a problem for the future, I think, of, of philosophical possession and, and not, but this is the, this is our past of philosophical possession. And there simply is no problem if you accept the Aristotelian. So, I've argued that, or argued, I've presented a, a, an idea, okay, which is that on the Aristotelian view, causation is a process and not a two-place relation. Uh, the process is one of interaction between objects, one object influencing the other. And now I'm going to disagree with Aristotle. Because he thinks that, or the Aristotelian tradition, until, you know, until now, I think, uh, assume that some objects are active and others are passive. That action really is unidirectional. It's always from agent to patient. So there's this idea of, of action being unidirectional, which again invites the idea that efficient causation, and really because efficient causes are the only kind of causes we accept now today, causation is essentially external. And that's a, a consequence of this idea of unidirectionality. And this is the reason why we treat, for instance, spontaneous decay as a non-causal change, because it lacks an external influence. Events that happen in the absence of external influence, that's a definition of a spontaneous, spontaneous decay. Now, it's not that we don't know what happens in spontaneous decay. We know perfectly well what happens. It only happens to compound entities, entities that are typically described as unstable, exactly because they decay spontaneously. And we know that the decay happens because of an internal process, but we're prevented from thinking of that process as causal because, by definition, causation is external. And that idea of externality is derived from the idea of unidirectionality. There's another related idea, which is that persistence is treated typically as non-causal. Because when we're thinking of the persistence and, and even constitutional things, uh, we don't think that they're constituted because of something external to them or they don't persist because something external to them make them persist. If they persist or are constituted, they do so on their own accord. But we can't treat that as causal because it lacks the component of externality. Now, that hasn't prevented some philosophers from, from still thinking that persistence is causal, but they have done so 
or, or introduce causality here by making the object external to itself. And this, this is relies on the adopting of some kind of a, a temporal parts ontology or a, or a stage ontology, where really the object is composed of many different objects and each has some kind of cross relation to the next in the series. Uh, and that's a concession, of course, that will end up in the same problems as I've outlined before with first this and that and, and an influence between them. And I think there's a better option, in particular, because I think this is a bad idea. The idea of externality relies on the idea of unidirectional actions, but it's a fundamental fact of modern physics that there are no unidirectional actions. They just don't exist. They, they, no instance of unidirectional action is known, ever. And this is, is expressed most clearly in Newton's third law of motion, right? which says that the force by, with which any object whatsoever acts on any other object is always exactly equivalent to the oppositely directed force that the second object exerts on the first. And this is supposed to be a universally valid law that applies to every instance of influence ever known. Right? No counterexamples known to this. Right? Uh, and uh, you know, you might argue, well, this is classical mechanics, classical mechanics is outmoded. But as far as I can tell, and I've asked physicists and philosophers of physics, is there anything in quantum physics that contradicts this law? And they can't think of anything. So it's likely that this will be, or at least the, the idea here that there's mutuality in all interactions will be preserved even in the transition to classical mechanics, to quantum physics. Now, Newton's law, unfortunately, uh, was formulated in colloquial language as the law of action and reaction. And that choice of terminology has invited misconceptions since the time it was, you know, then discovered really. Because the terms action and reaction invite associations to two different kinds of actions. Right? And of course we immediately think that the action is somehow prior. Action comes first. But that's a misconception. And it's a misconception that is a standard element in, in trying to prevent students in physics to, to adopt that misconception. So it's, it's clearly stated that, well, we use the term action and reaction, but, you know, these are just terms we apply arbitrarily to one or other side of an interaction. They just are two mutual actions. And this comes out beautifully in a passage from James Clerk Maxwell. This is 1877, so this is old news. The mutual action between two portions of matter receives different names according to the aspect under which it is studied, and this aspect depends on the extent of the material system which forms the subject of our attention. So it has to do with the next aspect that an observer takes. And of course, action between two portions of matter, between bodies, not events. If we take into account the whole phenomenon of the action between the two portions of matter, we call it stress. So really, in an interaction between a brick and a window, when we're not particularly concerned with what happens to the window, we just want to see the phenomenon, we see the reciprocality of the interaction, and that then is stress. But if we confine our attention to one of the portions of matter, we see as it were only one side of the transaction, namely that which affects the portion of matter under our consideration. And we call this aspect of the phenomenon with reference to its effect an external force acting on that portion of matter. The other aspect of the stress is called the reaction on the other portion of matter. But that's this uh, naming of one or other side as the action and the other's reaction in most just a perspective that we decide to take. For instance, because when a window is broken, it's inconvenient. You know, it's expensive to replace. It becomes drafty. You know, so we don't care what happens to a brick when it's hit by a window. You know. But if we have, if we pay attention to that, we realize that the window exerts an equivalent force 
on the brick as a brick accessible window, which results in the loss of velocity, kinetic energy, change in linear momentum, and the end result is a brick line at rest in a pile of broken glass. Just to illustrate that this is not just old stuff, this is the uh, entry from the, our modern Bible of knowledge, Wikipedia. <laughs> but it's a good entry. Uh, it's the best there is because it just, you know, uh, repeats everything I've said so far. The third law means that all forces are interactions between different bodies and thus that there is no such thing as a unidirectional force or a force that acts on only one body. The action and the reaction are simultaneous, and it does not matter which is called action and which is called reaction. Both forces are part of a single interaction, and neither force exists without the other. So there is just one thing, the interaction. There is two things, an action and a reaction, that sometimes get together. You know. They arise, both the forces arise in the interaction. It's one single thing. Now, really, everything that I've argued so far is more or less a paraphrase of what <coughs> Mario Bunge, an Argentinian philosopher, argued in his book Causality from 1959. A fantastic book, but much neglected, unfortunately. And his conclusion uh, was that the severe shortcoming of the strict doctrine of causality is that it disregards the fact that all known actions are accompanied or followed by reactions. The polarization of interacting objects with agents and patients is ontologically inadequate. However, he resisted the idea that I'm going to pre you know, present, uh, that we should think of causation instead in terms of interactions. And the reason why he resisted it was that he thought that, well, from a pragmatic point of view, you know, we are interested in what happens to the window. We are not interested in what happens to the brick. So usually, it serves some purposes to adopt the kind of idea of unidirectionality. And in most cases, you know, you, this doesn't really uh, make a difference, you know, or at least the, the, the misunderstandings that arise are, are negligible. Uh, but mainly he resisted the idea because if uh, the only option he could see really was that we treat the action as the cause and the effect as if as and the reaction as the effect. And that was absurd because that would mean that cause and effect are arbitrary terms. They're perfectly symmetrical, neither produces the other, there's no succession in time between them and so on. So all the usual characteristics that we associate with causality are just gone. For some reason, he could not see the possibility that was in, in, indicated by himself by noting that there's just one thing, the interaction. So why not think of an interaction as what we think of as what produces an outcome? So the interaction is the cause, and whatever outcome of that interaction is the effect. And then we have succession in time, we have existential dependence of the effect on cause, we have an asymmetry in time. Uh, the only thing that we need to change is the idea that Influence is unidirectional and that influence is between times, right? So we need to separate the direction of influence from the direction of production. And, and so that's really my suggestion. Why not think of causation as the reciprocal uh, interaction between objects with powers and the outcome that they produce? And I would say that, uh, that this is just what the present-day powers-based ontologies are going towards in this idea of mutual manifestation of powers. Except that when they are talking about mutual manifestations, they are usually talking about the mutual manifestations of active and passive powers. So they are thinking of the power to, to dissolve and the power to be dissolved, or the power to break and the power to be broken, and so on. And that's, I would say, maybe there are such distinctions between active and passive powers, but in an interaction, there is always going to be also you know, if one object acts on the other, producing some change in their passive powers, 
the other object will also act with active powers on their passive powers also. Right? So it's going to be a, a cross rather than uh, a unidirectional action. Now I'm, I'm, uh, I myself, you know, persuaded by the argumentation so far, <laughs> but um, I need to point out that the consequences of accepting this view are profound. It has serious consequences for the way people have been thinking about causation. Not only is the agent-patient distinction invalid, except insofar, I'll make an exception here. I think, I mean, Aristotle, when he invented this distinction, he was thinking well, to a high degree of intentional agency. But we can't apply that to our understanding of interactions between inanimate objects. We can't model all interaction on the basis of how we act on the world. Uh, and here I really just ignored the, the intentional agency problem, which I think is a separate problem. I want to become clear on, on causation in the world of inanimate objects first, which is an easier thing to do. Uh, and I think that there's an agency bias in the way we've been thinking about causation, notably that we're prone to identify flying objects, objects in motion, as having almost a kind of intentionality. They're on their way to break a window or whatever, but they, they aren't. They're just in a state of motion, just like the windows in a state of motion. I mean, these windows appear to be stationary, but they're moving with the earth, you know, so the idea of, of objects being addressed is, 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 isn't right. right. But anyway, the agent-patient distinction uh, will have to go if this is right, but so do, so too must the distinction between causes and conditions. Because what is the idea of a distinction between a cause and a condition? It is the idea that there's one particular component that's somehow important, that it does all the producing really. It's the only thing that has a productive power, and the rest is just fluff that needs to be there. It doesn't really contribute. Uh, and if what I'm arguing is right, then there is no such distinction. So we can't say that there is a stuff that doesn't do anything. All stuff does something, at least if you accept a power-based ontology. And if that's right, that there is no real distinction between causes and conditions, then of course the whole affair about Ceteris Paribus conditions, or Ceteris Paribus clauses, need to be reconsidered too. Because the whole idea of saying all else being equals is to really fix what we consider to be the passive conditions that somehow need to be there but don't really contribute, and especially when we don't know what they are, you know? It's a cheap way of saying, well, we don't know exactly what they are, but if they are the same, the outcome will be the same. It's a, well, maybe a fun fact, but this term, Ceteris Paribus, comes really from history. It had to do with when we were trying to explain really complicated events like the world wars, right? Why did they come about? Uh, and we can't specify exactly what, what, what was going on in the world. So we said, well, all things being equal, if principe shot transferred around, things would turn out the same, something like that. But you go and tell the people now working at the Lage Hadron Collider that they're working under Ceteris Paribus, because they say, you know, uh, Ceteris Paribus, you know, you don't really know what's going on there, but, you know, Ceteris Paribus, everything will turn out well. If there's a speck of dust in that Hadron Collider that really matters, and they don't know about it, that there's hell to pay, you know. They are able to specify exactly the conditions under which the neutrino fire that way produces something. Let me just say that we need to think again about uh, Ceteris Paribus clauses if this is right. Now, the power versus stimuli distinction uh, is similarly under threat because what is a stimuli if you've already accepted the power-based ontology? Well, it's, a, it's something with a power. And if powers are always act reciprocally, then you can't really objectively distinguish between powers and stimuli. This will really turn out to be, you know, the same kind of perspective that Maxwell describes so well, you know. Depending on what we're interested in, we choose to call one thing the, the object acting with power and the other being the stimuli, right? 
The window is a stimuli to the brick's power, and the power is a stimuli to the window's power. Break and so on. So that's more of a question of perspective rather than an objective distinction. Uh, and the same goes for the sufficient versus necessary conditions when they're applied to uh, the different components in a causal nexus. And this is, a, a, I think, a difficulty for interventionist accounts, because they would like to say that, well, of course, is that when you manipulate it, the effect either comes or goes or changes, right? But you can say that of all the things that are involved. If you have a, an experiment, you set up the equipment, you know, it doesn't matter if they're involved in the outcome at all. If you mani manipulate anything, it will change the outcome. And this was really what Mackey already pointed out, that you, you can, you know, all of them make a difference for the outcome. So you can't say that all of them are sufficient, given the others, right? None of them are really individually sufficient. That might be necessary components in a, in a total course that is sufficient for the outcome. Now, Mackey thought that the, that the, uh, that the causal nexus was unnecessary because he thought, you know, uh, something else could produce the same thing. Uh, but that was only because he was talking of causality on such a high level of generality. He was talking of, you know, short circuits in the attic and, and fires and something like that, in very vague connections. Uh, and it isn't clear, and that was pointed out by Galen Strawson here earlier, that, that if you go down to the level of determinate reality, it seems that we're more likely to find unique connections between particular determinate effects and one particular determinate cause. So these are just the consequences of accepting it. Yeah, I, so I've, I've tried to say, on the Aristotelian view, causation is a process involving influence between bodies. Uh, the influence, I've suggested, should be thought of as reciprocal rather than unidirectional. Uh, and then we, we end up very clearly in a kind of total cause conception. Uh, but I would argue that that has always been a component in the Aristotelian view, it's always been a total cause conception. Uh, any outcome is really an outcome or, or product of the combination of material, efficient, and formal causes, right? Along with the final causes, too. And I think this comes out very well in Hobbes. This is uh, a citation from Hobbes, which is very much, I think, a neglected philosopher in, in the metaphysics of, of causation. And he says that an entire cause is an aggregate of all the accidents, both of the agents and of the patients, put together, which, when they are supposed to be present, it cannot be understood but that the effect is produced at the same instant. And if any of them be wanting, it cannot be understood but that the effect is not produced. It's an extremely strong formulation in causation. It really says that the effect, if and only if, the entire total cause. And if anything is different, we won't get the effect. So this is clearly a statement of, of a connection between causation and counterfactuality without appeal to causal words. Now, um, we can complain about the exact phrasing here because he talks of an aggregate of accidents. But that would be to take this passage out of context because in the rest of the text he makes it very clear that these accidents, these powers, are only exerted in an interaction between agent and patient. Uh, and I think this is really the key to understanding where Mumford and Anjan go wrong because they would like to construe powers really as aggregates of accidents. And we should think of them without considering to what these powers belong and how they are, are, are exerted in an, in, in an interaction. So their idea is that, well, if we have four powers and their manifestation is M, right, then uh, if the connection between them is necessary, then even if we have five powers, we should still get M. And clearly we don't. Right? But it becomes difficult when you have to place first the, the powers that you have into an agent and a patient and see how they interact. Either you put the fifth power 
into the agent, in which case you've already changed the interaction, you've changed the cause, not the effect, right? Uh, or you put in the patient, or, or you add an external influence, right? And then, with however you you labor with these properties, you always get just a different interaction, and therefore a different effect. You don't get the same cause with a different effect. Yeah, so uh, I'm just suggesting that if we accept that these accidents, uh, the powers don't invite an agent-patient distinction, we just talk of reciprocal action between powers, we get a different account of causation. Well, really a similar one. It, it's just the only thing that's different is really this. You mean the reciprocity of action instead of unidirectionality. And we can illustrate this schematically like this. We can think of two identical objects. Let's think of two billiard balls. P stands for the linear momentum, but you don't have to think about that. And this is out in space somewhere, so no friction to the surface and all of that. And they're moving toward one another, just uniformly, so no causation happening until they uh, come into contact with one another, and then something happens. And what happens is that an influence begins, and the change begins simultaneously. And there's no contradiction in this. There's no contradiction in the beginning of an influence, and in the beginning of a change. No two contradictory states or anything. The influence takes time to exert itself. The change takes time to, to happen. So we get succession in time. Nothing ever has incompatible properties at the same time. And this, I think, is what we should, how we should be thinking about simultaneous causation. Simultaneous causation is not about simultaneity of cause and effect. It's a simultaneity of influence and change, which is not the same thing. But the problem with previous accounts of simultaneous causation was the idea that causation is first this and that, and then, oh, no, they're simultaneous. And then you have this idea of two temporally bounded events. In one event, the, the window is whole, and the other it's broken, and they happen simultaneously, so there's a window that's whole and broken at the same time, and we don't get any succession in time between anything. Everything just collapses to one point. But in this account, we don't. And, you know, there's really nothing special going on here. This is just an interaction as described by the laws of motion, as it really happens. And the only thing I've done is to say, well, let's allow that the influence is reciprocal instead of unidirectional. And we think of the connection between cause and effect as the relation between an influence and an outcome, and you get simultaneous causation of a kind. There's a, historically, uh, I don't know if you know about this, but the, the, the law of action and reaction has, has created confusions and, and problems for a lot of philosophers. Kant is one, for instance. So uh, the reason why the second analogy of experience is three times as long as the other two is because he's dealing with the simultaneity of causation. And that's because he has misunderstood the, the, the uh, I, I think, and he's misunderstood the, the law of action and reaction. He thinks that simultaneity of causation is, is about cause and effect being simultaneous. Uh, and he is forced to accept that, in fact, they are. It's just that for him, the, once the, the influence has stopped, the effect prevails. That's, that's, that's his explanation why there still is conceptually a succession in time. Right? So in a way, Kant actually accepts this model. Okay, <laughs> or ends up doing that. There's also an interesting, I mean, in, in Kant, you're supposed to expect to get an, a thesis and an antithesis and then a synthesis, right? And in the analogy of experience, you don't get that. You expect to get that, right? The first is, uh, is, is about the permanence of substance, which really says everything is always the same. And then you get succession of, appear uh, succession of, of states in the field of appearances, which really says everything is always different. So you have thesis, everything is always the same. 
antithesis, everything's always different. And then you get this principle of, of community reciprocity, and it doesn't explain anything why the two go together. This does. A succession of states, qualitative states, is produced in what is having the same substance due to the interaction or community of the substances. This makes sense of Kant's analogies of experience, right? And what we should note is that we have two, not just one, but two necessary connections. One is the lawful uniform causal process. Whenever two objects of that kind interact in this way, this is inevitably the outcome. But we also have a generic link, which says that any token effect is necessarily made of the same stuff as the interaction that produced it. There's the sameness of substance between uh, cause and effect. Uh, and this generic link holds independently of the other, of the, of the, the uniform. Uh, you, can, you can even allow that, as long as you keep the idea of reciprocity, you can allow uh, all reciprocal interactions to be unique and, and haphazard. And there will still be this generic link. And this is a very similar link then that Kripke talked about when he said that we necessarily come from the sperm and eggs that produced us. This is uh, of a different kind. One thing to note is that these connections are very local. I mean, you can't say this interaction produces or necessarily connects with something, you know, that happens long after. This is very much what happens in the interaction. So how this relates to, for instance, smoking causes cancer. That needs to, to, to be worked out. And probably we have to just say, well, when we're talking about that on that scale, we're not talking about necessary conditions actually. We don't even think that we should be thinking about it. Just, these are general trends in our, in our microscopic field. But it's very <coughs> difficult to avoid admitting that in the, on the local cases, you have this necessity. Now that I'm sure that you, you believe me, <laughs> uh, you have the idea of causation, right? Uh, and now, I come to the part where I'm supposed to explain what this, what the consequences are for constitution and persistence. And uh, first, we need to make clear that I'm not talking about symbols. And symbols could be thought of as existing over time, yes. But if there are symbols, and I'm prepared to admit that we might probably have to postulate symbols, uh, they persist in some sense just because they can't be destroyed. You know, they're necessary existence. They exist forever. And that's not the kind of persistence we really concerned about. That's not the kind of position we need to explain, and, and definitely not going to get a causal explanation. Neither are we concerned with aggregates, because if, for instance, an aggregate is made entirely out of symbols, then the aggregate will exist exactly like the symbols, not to be forever. But if an aggregate has but one unity, or compound unity, that comes into being and goes out of being, that aggregate will only exist insofar as the compound does. Right? So the entire problem of, of persistence is about these compound unities. And those include everything we can point at in this room. You know, we don't see any symbols. We can't point at symbols. They're too small. Right? So everything we know is a compound. And that's the kind of objects we're concerned about explaining. How do they persist? How are they created? How are they destroyed? And so on. That's causation. So those are the kind of entities that I'm concerned about. And uh, I think really that... What I'm going to do is just remind you of things you already know and put it in, in the context of, of what I've argued, you know. Uh, compound entities, you know, by definition really are unities of parts. And the unity persists as long as the parts are connected. We know this. A chair is, you know, made of parts and the chair sticks together as long as the parts are connected by the glue or screws or whatever connects them, right? Science tells us that all these connections, all connections we know exist are mutual. They're reciprocal. There are no unidirectional bonds. They're always reciprocal. 
and then there are interactions in the way I've, I've uh, characterized them. And these interactions will then continuously conserve the unity, and on the surface of it, it may appear that they do this in a static fashion. They're just there, they're just there. But that would be wrong, again, because science has shown us that inside of these objects, there is a continuous change going on. And in fact, it will tell us that these changes are necessary for the preservation of the unity. And we might take, uh, uh, as an example, an object that is so big we don't need a microscope to see these changes that are happening, uh, which is the solar system. It's an object that has, uh, or unity, that has persisted for millions of years. It will continue to exist for millions of years. But between any two points in time, there is never, it's never the same. It continues to changing. The planets are moving in their orbits. And in fact, these changes are necessary for the preservation of unity. If they move faster, they will escape the gravitation of the sun, and there's no solar system. If they move slower, they will be pulled into the sun and destroyed. And even if we, we might imagine that, for some strange reason, the gravitational bond between them just breaks. And at the instant the bond breaks, you just have an aggregate of disconnected parts, and they will be dispersed. The solar system doesn't exist further than that. And it appears that, you know, whatever entity in the world we can point to, this is going to be the case. It's going to be a unity of part in that sense. And will preserve, will be, continue to exist only insofar as the parts within it maintain some kind of dynamic structure. And that way they are, in a sense, processes. Now, this structure is preserved until the balance of the mutual interactions is disturbed. But, and that can happen in different ways. Either you have two unities and they collide and one is destroyed because the other is stronger. They, they're both destroyed or they will, you know, you know, fuse into one system. Other alternatives are possible, but whatever is going to happen, the result will be because of the interaction between the unities and their parts. Now, sometimes these unities are, as I said, unstable. So they are in a certain dynamic, roughly status quo, but the, but the status quo is, is, isn't in balance. So it won't be able to preserve its unity for indefinitely. And in fact, really, uh, we think that the verdict is that there just aren't any balanced systems at all. They're just of different lengths, right? But some are, uh, you know, just last for a fraction of a second before they destroy it. And as I said, we're, pre we're just prevented from thinking of the way these unities are destroyed on their own or from the inside as being a causal thing because we want it, it to be because of something external to it. And that idea is based on the idea of unidirectionality, which just doesn't obtain in the universe, right? So we can then, uh, I suggest, think of things as really products of an interaction between parts and it persists over time similarly as a product of the interaction taking place. A brick, uh, a brick house is really a brick house only insofar as the parts are connected in some significant way. We, we know what difference it makes to, to have mortar between the bricks and not have any mortar. Right? Uh, sometimes of course these buildings will have to they borrow, uh, in a way, uh, something from, from the Earth because they usually stand on top of the Earth, which gravitationally interacts with the bricks. So if there isn't any mortar, they might still stick together. But if we just put a pile of, of bricks out in space somewhere where there's no gravitation, they will just float apart, right? Unless the van der Waal forces between them might keep them apart or something like that. Okay. And I, I don't think that I've really said anything new about the constitution of objects I've only said something that allowed you to understand the way that you usually think of them as being constituted as being causal, just by changing the idea of unidirectionality to that of reciprocality. And so that would be uh, the way we could think of what Karen Bennett likes to call diagonal grounding.
uh, unity is grounded in its parts, but at the same time as it is grounded that way, it will kind of preserve its, its unity over time. The final question is, are these are persistent objects of this kind, are they substances or are they processes? And this relates to what John Dupre is, is going to say uh, in two weeks. And as I understand this abstract, he wants to say that, that processes are more fundamental than substances. And I would like to say, no, you don't have to choose. You can think of objects as both substances and processes at the same time. Now, we first consider the, the, the most popular criteria for being a substance. It's something that has attributes without itself being an attribute. And of course, these compound entities that I've described are substances. But there's a, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's popular to say that this is, this is what, this is really the only thing that we need to know about substances. But that, I think, is, is a mistake. And, and if you just take this definition of substance and then you add to this criterion another popular idea, which is that substances are individuated by their qualities, properties. And then you also think, which is popular too, that all times exist in parity. All times, at all times exist, you know, equally. And then immediately you get the argument that if David Lewis is bent at T1 and David Lewis is, is straight at T2, uh, they are equally existent and real, uh, and they're individuated by a property. So David Lewis at T1 and David Lewis at T2 are different substances. There's a direct consequence, and that negates the possibility that David Lewis is a subject, substance that can change. So we get to automatically a, a conceptual substance of something that can change if we combine with these other criteria. And that uh, contradicts other criteria or popular characterizations of what it is to be a substance. This is really a fairly recent and, and very uh, abstract conception, but usually we tend to think that substances are contingent beings, you know, like this comes into being, goes out of being. They are spatial temporal. And of course, symbols, if they are, if they exist, they're, they're, not, they're not substances in this sense because they're necessary beings, not, not contingent beings. Substances are capable of change, and the argument that I just gave contradicts that. David Lewis is clearly not a substance that can change. You know, whenever he has different, he's a different substance. That's a, a simple consequence of this argument. There are persistent beings, but if they're persistent in the contingent way, they can't be symbols. Either. There are independent beings, uh, meaning I think that you can have one compound entity that has a certain nature because they have certain powers, and there are other unities, and they have other natures, or it's the same nature independently of what this entity is like. And they can affect each other. And I think that my, uh, my construction here of, of persistent compounds fit all these criteria. They have attributes that are not themselves mere attributes. They are contingent, they are spatial temporal, they're capable of change, they are persistent, they're independent, and they can affect each other. So they are substances. And yet they seem to be processes as well. And we can go through a similar list of criteria for processes. This is a list borrowed from Nicholas Rescher. And you should have in mind that uh, this list is designed really as a contrast to the substance ontology, right? So some of them uh, might be designed really to produce a contrast where you don't need to have one. So a process is a complex of temporally ordered stage of phases. And I would say that a, a compound entity, like these chairs or so on, they, well, they produce a complex of temporally ordered stage of phases. They are continuously kind of preserving unity in a dynamic fashion. The stages of phases involve becoming, a transition from potentiality to actuality, and yes, very much, these compounds are continuously changing, and that means that they are, are uh, in transition from one potentiality, or they uh, 
or actualizing potentialities that are in the system, right? Each new state of the solar system used to be a potentiality, it became an actuality. And in fact, uh, there's a great advantage of my view compared to usual standard kind of process ontologies because they think of the stages as distinct entities. And then the movement from potentiality to actuality of each stage is kind of separate from the movement from potentiality to actuality of the next stage. And the first stage is somehow supposed to, or what White had called the concrescence of one state, is supposed to trigger the concrescence of the next one. But I don't know how that's supposed to work. How can an actuality uh, exert uh, an influence on a mere potentiality? It becomes a little bit too mysterious for my liking. Uh, and I think my model uh, invites me to understand object is only becoming, continuous becoming. The stage of phases are distinct, and if all that is meant is temporally distinct, there's no problem. You know, the, the process ontology would like to think of them as being actually distinct entities, like different substances even. Uh, and I, I can't agree with that. And a process is neurologically homogeneous, and that's a criterion I'd like to think of as being introduced just to produce a contrast to substance ontologies. They're saying that a process is a process is a process is a process is a process in all eternity, and nowhere are we going to find anything that remotely looks like a substance. And that's just one way of saying a process is not a substance, or at least not subordinate to the process. But how to make sense of that, in a way, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems to lead to an infinite progress. It appears to be vicious. A process has a temporal structure. Each stage has connection with the future and past, and the compounds that I've described have that. They have a temporal structure, and each stage has connection with the future and past. In fact, this, the connection is systematic because it's causal. And there is a generic link. Yes, all the stages are just different states of the same substance. And that's uh, something that the process ontologists end up having deep problems with. If they are distinct entities, these stages of the process, how are they generically or genetically linked? You have to assume that somehow a process exists first as a mere series, succession of potentialities, and then somehow they trigger uh, the movement to actuality of each other somehow. But if that is a generic link, that's a different kind of genetic link than one I have. So it seems that, that uh, at least this model of, of uh, causation as interaction and of persistent objects as being constituted by parts that are interacting can make sense of most of these criteria for what appears to be a process without abandoning the idea that they are substances. And the only thing that we need to perhaps be careful of thinking that, that it's popular to think of substances as symbols. Uh, and uh, I think that we can only think of them because uh, and I, I, why I introduced this distinction between symbols and uh, aggregates and unities was to really say that, well, in the end, the things that we are have been deliberating about when, we, when it comes to substances, they are all compounds. It's the things we see around us, they're all compounds. So those are the kind of entities we're concerned about explaining. And the idea of symbols. It's just a tool that we have. There's a theoretical entity what we postulate to explain the compounds. Right? It's not as if we have the symbols and we're trying to explain them. We're trying to explain the compounds. And then it, I think it's natural to say that the kind of substances we are interested in explaining are all compounds. And in that sense, there are going to be both substances and processes as well. We can combine the two. Yeah, I think I've got to shut up now when it's five seconds to, to an hour. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure you have, have questions.